And as you turn there, I'm actually going to be reading, this was sort of a change in the last minute, but reading, I'll start in chapter 11, verse 7, and go through chapter 12 to verse 8, which will conclude his writings, and then at the end there is his epilogue. Um, but I won't be reading that. We have, we have read and pulled from that already. I will be including, though, Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Uh, before I read this, I had to, I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. I had a chance to get away with our family. And as I was thinking about how to land this plane and finish this thing, because it's created more questions than answers for me, and I suspect it's done the same for you, I decided just to ask May, who is my eight-year-old, you know, May, you've been in there with us this entire time. She just joined the church recently. What have you gotten out of Ecclesiastes? And uh, before I tell you her answer, let me tell you what not to do is ask your eight-year-old what she's getting out of your sermons. (laughs) But I thought her answer was incredible. She said, well, I'm either lying down on mommy's lap or writing a comic. Translation, I haven't, I don't know. I haven't gotten anything out of what you're talking about. Um, Points for honesty, for sure. Hopefully that's not you. Maybe you're a little bit further, but if not, that's okay. We're moving on to Luke next week as we head into Advent, and then we'll continue in Luke as we uh, move into the spring series uh, beginning January 7th. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Uh, Found uh, one last time for us uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that he that, that the days, excuse me, of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Chapter 12, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders, which are teeth, seize because they are few and those who look through the windows, which are our eyes, are dimmed. And the doors, which are our ears, on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, gray hair. The grasshopper drags itself along, the loss of mobility, and desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, for the wheel, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And then from Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ... 
and to die is gain. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would graciously give us your spirit, that you would pour out your grace on us to open our eyes and ears that we may see and hear things this morning and to meditate on them throughout the week. Otherwise, we could not, that you would take our hearts and shape them and produce in them good soil so that as the seed goes out into good soil, it would return and produce a fruit that we too would leave here changed people. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Well, last week we ended with how the preacher's final words should shape us and not, not cause us to cower into fear. You could say how death should shape us, since that's kind of been the, 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 the guiding theme throughout this book. And should it cause us to fear, to cower in fear, to be paralyzed, or should it spring us into life? Do we spend our lives, as we said last week, trying not to die? Or do we spend lives characterized by giving our lives away, sitting loose to our possessions? And this led us to two ways that the text shapes us. It shapes our perspectives on life. That is, what is life for? And that is for giving it away for the sake of others, to model and embody the character of our God. But it also shapes our allegiances, and this is where we left off. And by allegiances, I mean who it is that we follow. Both of these turn us from takers or keepers of life, which is the pattern of death itself. Death takes everything away and it changes us into givers to new life. And this morning we are picking up where we left off on how Ecclesiastes shapes our allegiances and how that produces a life of obedience and following Jesus. Obedience can be a very interesting thing. Many people think many different things about it, especially as it pertains to uh, the Christian life. What is obedience for? Some believe obedience leads to salvation. Others believe that obedience and salvation are not related. Still, Jesus tells us, if you love me, obey my commandments. Certainly, you are not saved by obedience. You are saved by faith. So what is obedience for? And what I'm wanting to suggest to you this morning is that obedience to Jesus is a grace and a mercy to us that God gives us in order to call us out of ourselves. In other words, it is a first step, so to speak, of leaving a life of taking and keeping the pattern of death and moving towards new life, a life of gift and giving. Ecclesiastes has been telling us that wisdom is its own reward. When we live in a way that is wise, we reap the benefits of that living. Obedience is its own reward too. That to live as God calls us to live moves us to be human as we were created to be human. But we tend to think that the reward of obedience is merit. That God now loves me because I've done these things. I have obeyed. The reward for obedience to Christ then is not His love It's something else. It's his favor plus his love. But instead what we see is that the reward for obedience in Christ, what, is to become more of what he created us to be. And that would be to be more human. It is literally and figuratively a move from death to life. Jesus illustrates this for us both literally and figuratively in this familiar story in John chapter 11 where a friend of his has died and his friend is Lazarus. And he goes to Lazarus and he goes to the tomb 
and he commands Lazarus to come out. He says, come out or come to me. And if you're familiar with the story, you know what happens. Lazarus comes out. He comes to Jesus. Now, the story is not saying something about Lazarus and the obedience uh, in, in him that caused him to come out of the tomb. This story is saying something about who Jesus is and who is Jesus. Or what is it saying about who Jesus is? It's saying something about what Jesus has said about himself earlier. Which, if you recall, Jesus has just finished saying, I am the resurrection. I am the life. This new life is received fully upon Jesus' second coming. We would, we would say, and Scripture would testify, but it starts now. New life begins here as we follow and obey Jesus. It is literally and figuratively a move from death to life. In other words, obedience is the beginning of taking a new life here on and now. Uh, excuse me, is the beginning of taking on new life here and now as a giver and not a taker. Because that is who God is, and we become like who we follow. So what does this look like? Lots of things, but let's just smart, start small, and I'll leave you to figure out the rest for yourself. But it helps us to think about prayer in a different way. If we think about prayer, Jesus, what? He, he calls us to pray for our enemies, to pray for others, to pray for the kingdom. Well, what is that? Prayer, in one sense, is what you giving up your agenda on earth for somebody else's agenda. It's agreeing to live in and be about a kingdom. It isn't fully here yet, but is your own. That's new life, friends. That is dead people coming to life. Dead people don't pray. This is obedience. Worship, then. What are we doing here? All right. This reminds us, among other things, of our new identity. You are participating in God's kingdom come. We come here to be shaped and reminded of who we are, whose we are, who we belong to, and where we are going after death. But this new kingdom, according to the resurrection, doesn't start at our death. It starts now. What about grace and mercy? You actually become givers of life in the way you model the gospel to others. As a pastor friend says to me, you have to let the gospel that you want to be true for you be true for other people. In other words, the same grace and mercy that you love, that Jesus gives you, and that you read about in Scripture and proclaim, must be the same that you give to others. And while this doesn't happen overnight, obedience to Jesus makes us lovers of His ways. And thus givers of His grace and mercy as well. So many more examples of how obedience to Jesus calls us from death to life. And perhaps for some of us, this just becomes stale living or just another day at the office. I don't know. Or just what Christians do. But don't miss the small things of sorts. Don't miss the, the ways that you are, by obedience to Christ, being called out of this pattern of death, of living a life of keeping and taking. And being transformed and invited into this new life of giving, of breathing new life into this creation, as it were. So many more to discuss, but this is how a life of obedience to Jesus shapes us and calls us from death to life. It is a story of Jesus looking at you and saying, come out, come to me, for I am the resurrection and the life. 
And I can't think of a more appropriate place to sort of tie in the Gospels as we finish this book in the Old Testament than those words of Jesus to come out for I am the resurrection and the life. Paul will package this phrasing, which is why I included it in our reading, in Philippians one twenty one, when he says to live is what? To, is to live is Christ. All I do, all I do for Christ is I do for his followers, for Christ and his follower, as his follower, excuse me. All I do, I do for Christ as his follower. It's not my life anymore. It's my life given over to his. Friends, that's obedience. But you've got to start seeing this as an invitation to move towards life. This is how Ecclesiastes wants to shape us, not just with a new perspective on life, but new allegiances. Who are we following? And as we enter the rest of the preacher's words to us in chapters 11 and 12, we are given these marks of obedience that I just simply want to show you as we leave this book. And there are marks of obedience in our lives that help us ask, who am I really following in this world? And is my life controlled more by the self-giving love of God or by fear? So first, if you look there in verses 8 or 9, you see that you are commanded to rejoice. You're commanded to have joy in this world. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Now, I found it interesting in, in my study that what youth means here is not some sort of arbitrary age that we might attach to it, right? It's not 18, it's not 26, right? Rather, youth means anyone who has not yet settled into the final stages of life depicted in verses 3 to 8 of chapter 12. So if you're here this morning, you are the youth this text is talking to. So you still have time, right? There you go. Certainly, we all have in mind a younger version of ourselves, and we're reminded of, the, of, of sort of one of those phrases that, you know, youth is wasted on the young. Or another way to put it is a honeymoon is wasted on a couple without kids, right? You just, you don't know what you have when that's all that you have until you age a little bit and you recognize, okay, this is what, this, this is what life was like or what, it, you know, wow, I wish, wish I could return to that. But the fact that we have not moved into these final stages of life, that is the youth that this text is talking about. And scripture, in one sense, uh, is saying to us um, that if you have life, you have it. And all of us come in here with various forms of that, for sure. But this command to rejoice or enjoy all that God has given you echoes back to that chorus line of sorts that the preacher has been building on throughout the book. Finally saying to all of us, no matter where we are in our youth, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Make no mistake, enjoyment, friends, as we leave this book, is a commandment. It's not a suggestion. And to break God's commandment, as one commentary writes, is always to trample his law and invite his judgment. In other words, we have no problem understanding that God will judge us for our misdeeds and sins. But here and throughout scripture, there is judgment from God for not having fun. Let me say that again. There is judgment from God for not having fun. Amen. For not enjoying, and this is the picture that we've been building upon, what he has given you. 
namely his life or this life and his life. Yes, both. And this gets complicated when we throw in the brokenness that sin has caused both in in ourselves and in this world. What about people who are severely depressed, right? What about people who have experienced abuse? What about citizens of war-torn countries? Is there judgment for them for not having fun, Ryan, if that's the way you want to put it, and for not enjoying this life? And the answer is, of course, no in that sense. But it would misunderstand what the preacher is telling us. And that is enjoyment, like all matters of obedience, isn't another thing to do so that God will not be angry with you. Rather, having fun in this life, rejoicing, friends, as another way of knowing God himself. That is where the judgment comes from. That you would deny something that allows you connection with the creator of this world, of knowing who he is. Isn't that why we give gifts to people in the first place? That they might know something of us. And that they may enjoy them in the process. This Christmas, many of you will give loved ones gifts. What's the effect if that child or friend or spouse never takes that gift out of the box? It could be that you're a terrible gift giver. It could be part of the fall of this earth. I get it. But what's the effect of that? You see how our lives as gifts function the same way. What does it say to God, who has done pretty good in this creation game, right? He's done pretty good in what he's created, what he's given us to explore and see and taste and enjoy. To not enjoy any of it. To not go out and explore it. To sort of stay huddled up in fear, trying to keep our lives. Certainly joy comes to all of us in different amounts and modes, no question. But it comes nonetheless, especially if we choose it. Some of you all have seen the video. I forget who did it. It's some church somewhere. Um, YouTube viral video. And it it starts out with this guy waking up in bed and he's wrapped in wrapping paper, Christmas paper. And it's kind of strange. And why is he wrapped? And he's taking it off and he's got this sort of annoying at first excitement about life. And he looks over to his spouse in his bed and she's wrapped up as well. And she's trying to figure this out. Kids come into the door. They're all wrapped up. He's all excited. He goes and he takes a shower. He puts on his shoes. They're wrapped up as gift, right? And you start to see the theme here. His coffee is wrapped up. His car keys are wrapped up. His work is wrapped up. Everything is wrapped up because the whole point of the video is that life is gift. And the end of the video says, this Christmas, may you be grateful for all the gifts around you. Certainly that would be a wonderful summary uh, statement for us of this book. But it may seem highly idealistic to wake up in that world every day. My cynicism certainly won't allow it. But it doesn't mean that I can't. There's invitation here. Could obedience to Christ and rejoicing in his gifts to me be calling me out of my cynicism and into a world of trusting that God is really good? This is a question that Ecclesiastes leaves us with, but it's a command. And it has to, through a command, by rejoicing. Are we a rejoicing people? Or to be that? Second, we are called to remove vexation or worry, anxiety, and even bitterness as, as you get into it. And that would, that, 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 with that word for pain there in your text is actually closer to evil. So while we are called to having fun, we are also called to restraint. And there is no better way to, to, no better restraint or respect for something than gratitude. G.K. Chesterton sums this up for me when he says, We thank God for wine and brandy by not drinking too much of it. It's perfect. 
It's brilliant. We thank God in our restraint by setting limits in life because how we live today matters to God and his creation. Be grateful because life is short. It is vapor. Put away this bitterness and anxiety about life. As one pastor puts it, it is grumpiness that grows with the sins of ingratitude. And it is anxiety that flourishes with the sin of idolatry. Scripture takes a hard stance against bitterness and anxiety. Why? Because that is not who God is. Listen to the words of Jesus and how similarly they sound to Ecclesiastes. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will, not, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, anxious saying, shall we eat? Shall we, what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Strikingly similar, isn't it? And there's that obedience language calling us out of ourselves, out of our kingdoms of death and destruction, and into seeking a new kingdom of new life and creation. The question for us at this moment then is which defines us? Which defines you? Rejoicing or cynicism? Gratitude or anxiety? Ecclesiastes wants us to check our allegiances, who we truly follow. Because this king tells me not to worry or be anxious about my life. And I don't do that perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. But my idolatry always paints a different story. Would obedience then to Jesus call me out of this life of anxiety and just to the possibility of considering the lilies today? Remove vexation, be grateful, marks of obedience to God. Lastly, the third thing that we see there is that we are told to remember. And to remember our Creator in the days of our youth, or before, you'll see that uh, printed several times in, in his last text there, before the last days of life shut us in. (laughs) It's interesting that there's this invitation, before things get too bad, consider, remember your Creator. And one of the reasons it says this is that we are breath. We are the cord that will snap. We are the golden bowl that will break, the pitcher that will shatter, the wheel that stops. And to dust we shall return. Our creator has both made us and he will also unmake us, the preacher is telling us. So how do we remember him? How do we remember our creator? And the answer is simple, by living. The way we remember our creator is remembering that life is for living. To remember him get to the point of what it means to be a rejoicing people, to be a removing people, of finding joy in this life that we have, 
We remember him by by being grateful for the gifts around us. We remember him by living lives that point to him and our obedience as followers of, of his, of this great God in Jesus Christ and his givers of life. Everything that we have said at this point is a way of remembering our creator in the days of our youth. <laughs> Before those days of darkness come in. Rejoice, remove, remove that bitterness Remove that anxiety and remember your creator. So how do, we, how do we do this in light of the fear of death that we've talked about or that is even described there in verses 3 to 8? It's not a very uplifting poem, but I challenge you to continue to read it and see its beauty and see its, its realism. But to fight that realism that oftentimes moves, moves to cynicism and to see the realism that the poem, that the, the text is painting for you to move you into gratitude, to move you into giving, to move you into life itself. How do we do this? Last week we said that the way that we become givers of life, the way that we give ourselves away to others, is first by knowing that God has given himself fully to us. Jesus is both the how and the why that we give ourselves away for others, to others for the sake of this world. And the same could be said for how we, look, how we find the ability to rejoice in this life, to remove anxiety and remember our creator until death. But I want to say it in a different way. The way that Paul says it in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. This is how we will live life, friends. It's ironic that for the entire book of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing to be gained in this life. Yet in the New Testament, it's turned around. To die is gain, according to Paul. That in Ecclesiastes, gain is actually evil. It's a sin. That there is nothing to be gained, as we have said this entire time here. It is foolish, it is sinful to try and carve out a life out of gain, of insulating yourselves from death and all of its destruction. But Paul says, nope, there is actually gain in this world now. And it turns out that it's death. And why? Because Jesus changes everything. He has the ability to turn death into gain. To make everything sad become untrue. To make judgment a reason to live life fully in the end. And we see that because you are no longer going to judgment after this life. You are going to a friend. You belong to Jesus who took the judgment for us. This is why for Paul to live here and to devote my life to following Jesus is incredible. But to die and to go be with Jesus is better. In other words, it is a win-win for you. So what do you have to lose? What is your only comfort in life as we just got done reading and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong. Body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The greatest comfort that you can be given in this life is that you belong to God. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes leaves us here in verse 7 when he says, And the dust returns to earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. What more do we need to know? The greatest comfort in this life is that you are not your own, but that you belong to God. So Christian, what do you have to lose? Or maybe better yet, what do you have to fear? And I get it. There's a lot to fear, right? What is your excuse for not rejoicing? What is your reason for ingratitude? How are you remembering your creator today? 
As I said, this book has left me with many more questions than answers. There's no nice tie it up in a bow and leave it. I hope we as a church take time with these questions and heed its wisdom. But for now, let me close this with, you know, with an illustration that in some ways summarizes this book's message to us, but also sends us, I hope, in the right direction for further meditation on what it means to be givers, but also what it means to leave this life of death, to follow Christ into new life. I have a friend who um, lives in Palo Alto, California, and he and his family of six were invited by another friend of his that lives nearby in Palo Alto um, to go uh, stay with them for two weeks in their home in Switzerland. Let me just stop there for a second. I always got to preface it with this. I always hear these stories and I'm like, where do you find friends like this? He, and he's quick to say, look, Palo Alto has the highest concentration of billionaires. Like the odds are you're going to run into one every once in a while. And we just, so if you want that, go to Palo Alto and live there. But, um, and so yeah, so this is going to sound a little strange, but just remember the context. Uh, and, and, and he said, sure, he was able to do that for that summer. And he said, great, I want to pay for your entire family to fly over, stay with us, just get here and come be with us. It'll be great. Which is a crazy illustration of generosity and of sitting loose to life's possessions, if I could throw that in there. So they, they prepare to go, and they, they do. They, they fly over to Switzerland, Switzerland and stay in this incredible you know, chalet uh, for, for two weeks. But this is where things got more interesting as he's telling the story. Because the story began with this. Do you want to know what it feels like to drive 165 miles an hour in a Ferrari on a German Autobahn? I'm like... Sure. And this is where the story all started. So once he gets over there, this guy has to go pick up this, pick up this Ferrari that he's bought. This sounds made up. Just remember. And so he's invited the friend to go with him to Munich to go pick it up. And my friend's describing the story. I mean, like when you walk into the dealership, you don't even, you know, you don't belong there. But then when you walk into the showroom that has the car, you're driving off a lot. It's covered in this. He said, the silk blanket, it's got your name on it. He says, he's pretty sure this blanket costs more than my entire life. And they take it off and they reveal it. And he's astonished at the beauty of this car. It's just a car. But it's not just a car, right? It is, it is a handmade car. And every detail has been crafted. And, and there's not one like it anywhere else. And so is he, he's just sort of standing there, probably drooling. It's time to get in the vehicle, which was another obstacle. Because now it's like, what's going to scratch it? What am I going to do to it? Am I going to you know, tear the leather? They get in this thing, and he just says, it is amazing. It's incredible. And they hand his friend the keys. And he turns the engine on. And he's the first one to drive it ever. And they take off. And what do you do when you're in Germany in a Ferrari? You get on the Autobahn, right? And so they get on that Autobahn and they hit it. And he says in no time, they were at 130, 140, and he's just holding on. And he says, what was it like? It was both terrifying and awesome at the same time. But then it gets better. The guy pulls the car over the side of the road and he looks over at my friend and he says, do you want to drive? And I'm just picturing this through my friend's reaction. Just what are you talking about? You know, and he's like, look, 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 I get it. You're afraid he's going to do something to the car. Don't worry about it. Because here's the deal. And this is what he says to him. This is the point of the illustration. People buy these things and they stick them in garages and they never drive them anywhere. So Ferraris were meant to be taken out of the garage, be put on autobahns and gone 165 miles an hour with your hair blowing back, driving into the Swiss Alps. Can't argue with that. 
right? Absolutely. And, and, and essentially what he's saying is, look, I'm going to go a little further with it. The maker of that car did not make that car, did not, not put his heart and soul into every fiber of that car just to have somebody, some rich guy from Palo Alto buy it and stick it in a garage somewhere. And so I asked him, well, did you drive? What did you do? He said, well, why do you think I asked you? Do you don't want to know what 165 feels like? I'm German Autobahn. Of course I did. It was incredible. It was terrifying, but it was, you know, it, it was what it was. So what's the point? This is, this is, this is the point. To live as Christ, to die as gain, we have nothing to fear. In other words, Jesus did not leave glory, friends. And just and think of his life. He didn't come down to this earth. He didn't enjoy laughter and drink and food while at the same time experience sorrow, the loss of friendships, the loss of people that he loved. He didn't come down here to experience being betrayed by people that trusted him. He didn't come down here just to experience those things, to then be tried, right? to be found guilty, although he's innocent, to be nailed to a cross, to be hung on that cross, to die a horrific death. He didn't do all that. He didn't, be, he didn't do all that to be buried in a tomb, to resurrect, and to ascend to the throne of God where he reigns today. He didn't do all that for you and for me to take our lives and keep them in the garage, as it were. And, and part of what, what Christianity, or what Ecclesiastes is telling us, is that you, in one sense, were created for 165 miles per hour on Audubon. Do you think Jesus did all this just so you could come to church every once in a while and call yourself a Christian? That's nonsense. That's not the gospel that I'm following. We were created for so much more. We were created for this experience that I'm illustrating to you on this Autobahn, which is both terrifying and awesome all at the same time. Before the wheels fall off and the engine block cracks and the paint peels away, friends, at least you could do is drive to the store. This is what Ecclesiastes is pushing us to. And I'll leave it to you and your small groups to work out the personal details of what it looks like for you to go live life. Because that's what it's for. It's why God has given it to you. And to do so remembering that while you were created for wonderful things. Is this not a reflection and a tell-all of the character and goodness of our creator? He wants to know you and he wants you to know him. And there's no knowing if we're sitting on our hands as wonderful creatures made in the image of God. Trapped and paralyzed of fear. When we have a creator who has come in here and has laid his life down for I just laid his life down for us so that we may be told to live as Christ and to die is gain. Fear God, obey his commandments. Sit under his grace and come out of this life of death of keeping and taking and into new life with Jesus. For this is the whole duty of man. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I I pray that you would use this book in mighty ways in our lives to help us understand your truth to us in Jesus, especially as we look at him in the coming weeks in the book of Luke. But I pray that you would leave us unsettled with the questions that this leaves us. You do not tie up our life in specific answers You do not give us the the things that we are dying for in one sense so that we know exactly what to do. 
But yet you give us the freedom to rejoice. You command it. To enjoy the things you have given us. To enjoy this life, though it be short. Would we take time to explore those questions? Would we see what that says about you, the great gift giver, and what you want to call us to? And would we be, in one sense, a living metaphor to this world? That we belong to the creator of good things. Who has great things in store for us. Both now and forevermore. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.